Morning. Afternoon. Yeah. Good afternoon. <laughs> yes. It's a such a pleasure to be up here, um, sharing the word of God with you. It's been such a pleasure to dig in and to research and to just learn. And I think that's what I love the most about it. When I'm preparing to talk front of people, it forces me to learn and to uh, understand and to build the right words to say, and it just helps me get closer and closer to this book, and I'm thankful for that. I think it's such a blessing. Before I get started, um, am I too close to this microphone, or is it too loud? Is it okay? Okay. Um, I think it's such a blessing that what we're doing today, uh, in these past weeks, we all pray. I think that's such a blessing. And I've really drawn from it. Uh, it's allowed me to really kind of share in your hearts a way that I maybe wouldn't have before. So I'm thankful for that, and I, I wouldn't mind seeing that moving forward. But God's will. It's really, it's just been a blessing. And I think in uh, Pastor's uh, prayer today, he always knows the word to say, doesn't he? Amen. Always does. I think it's very important, not only in our lives, but in this church life that we live in right here, that we just allow God to move. Amen. 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 We give God the room to move. So we have to get ourselves out of the way and we have to embrace what he has for us. So this is for anybody that is really listening to this. If you're here or anywhere and you give God the room to move and he'll bless your life. Amen. Amen. But what I need to kind of warn you about is uh, when he does do that, he's more than likely going to give you something to do. He's going to give you a, uh, a passion. He's going to give you a, uh, a blessing, and he's going to expect you to, uh, to act on it. Amen. So, and and I, would really, I would really just give you this advice. Uh, if God blesses you with anything, embrace it. Amen. Embrace it. And that goes back to our prayer today. Uh, Maria's prayer especially hit me today. I appreciated that so much. The, what, you, what you gals do for the women's ministry, the men's ministry, the kids' ministry, the store, preaching the word, just giving a hug and a, a good word to people, how you outreach through social media or just on the phone. These are all things that move God's ministry along. And I'm so thankful to be a part of it. I don't really know why God trusts me to do this right here, but I'm so glad that He does. I'm so glad that he does. And I know I've told this story before, but when I first met Keenan and I was at work and he was my boss and, uh, and I was just uh, a half angry dude, felt like a slave, felt like a pack mule. I was just there serving the king, which was my boss at the time. And then Keenan came into my life and uh, he started building my legs for the challenge to come. And he taught me 
that I was good enough. And he taught me to see the good in people. Amen. He taught me how to better trust and how to better love. And he gave me, or helped me, connect with God in a way that I probably wouldn't have otherwise. And now here I am, coming full circle, still serving the king. But it means something different today. As I said before, when I first started this and I was serving the king, that was basic sarcasm. I was serving a person who just needed me to toil for them, for their purpose, and um, didn't really care about me too much. And uh, so now I'm serving the king, and he's done nothing but bless my life. So... If you feel that God's in your life like that, can we just give God a hand praise right now? Let's give God a hand praise right now. Amen. These times we live in, uh, this time of uh, the COVID um, pandemic, the time of uh, just the flood, fires out west, fires in Gaylord right now, there's all sorts of tragedies happening. And uh, it takes me back to 9-11 when uh, the uh, planes hit the tower. We as a society were just a bunch of people. We were doing us. And then that hit. And then we all went crazy. And gas went up to $1.75 a gallon, and people were willing to do unspeakable things to each other just for a tank of gas because we felt our way of life getting ripped away from us. Right? And then we got together and we solidified and we said we are in this together. But guess what? We had a single enemy to point at, which was the people that flew into that building. But it solidified us. And then time went by and we went to uh, the, the, the tragedy uh, lessened and uh, we went to war and that passed as well. And eventually we just went back to people just doing us. The solidification of that event blew away, right? But it wasn't the last storm that was to come to this land, and now we have a brand new storm, amen? We have a brand new storm, and uh, we are continuing to, uh, some people are solidifying, but in, the difference is there are different groups that are solidifying in different ways, and instead of us all pointing our finger at the common enemy, which in this case I believe is the devil, we want to point our fingers at each other. We want to be divided. We want to say it's your fault. It's your fault. You didn't do this. You did do that. You, you were too slow on this. You were too quick for that. Because it serves our purpose to make the other person blame or look bad. It builds us up to tear down. You got to know that's not God's way. So we're sitting here pointing our fingers at each other and we're letting the enemy have his way. We're contributing to this problem. And what we tend to forget about it, and you know, the devil really does hate us, but more so he doesn't really care about us. But he knows God loves us more than anything else in this world and he, he hates God. And he wants to tear us away from God. Amen? So he wants us to do what? He wants us to lose our faith 
and submit to this world. The devil would love nothing more than for us to say, you know what, I guess God's really not paying attention. So I'm going to go back to doing me. Amen. So that's what I'm here to talk about today. I'm here to talk about how we can hold our faith in the times where a secular world wants nothing but you to give away your faith and submit to them. Amen? So the bulk of my message today is going to be in Ecclesiastes, but before I start, I want to talk about a word that I heard this week as I was going to and from work. I listened to different... um, inspirational uh, messages on the radio and uh, Rick Warren was talking about this and he really touched me and I I think it really fits what I'm trying to say today so I'm gonna I'd like to share that with you the story in question is in the book of Daniel where King Nebuchadnezzar sought after some of the youths of Israel to serve his kingdom does everybody know that story Um, I think you'll find that in what did I say Daniel 1 Okay. He sought after some of the youths to serve his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar plans to train the young men to serve in his palace. And after three years of training, he will choose only the smartest ones to come help him solve the problems of the kingdom. The king wants the boys to be strong and healthy while they are being trained, so he gives orders that his servants shall give all of them the same rich food and wine that he and his family receive. So Nebuchadnezzar went to Israel and he obtained himself a bunch of the Israel youths and he picked the best and the brightest of them to come and serve his palace to, uh, to be his servants. But he wanted the best because he's the king and he deserves the best. So He wanted to pick the best and the brightest and he wanted them to be as healthy and strong as they could be. So in his wisdom, he said, the food and the wine that I enjoy... We're going to give it to them, and we're going to make them healthy and strong and capable, and they're going to be my servants. So among the youths were Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who submitted to the king's training, but they decided they would not defile themselves with the king's delicacies or with the wine he drank. So Daniel asked the principal court official for permission not to defile themselves in this way, Um, the Jewish uh, people had a specific diet, as we know. And uh, they felt things to be unclean. They felt some foods to be holy, some foods to be not holy. And the uh, food and wine of Nebuchadnezzar was contradictory to the diet and the practices of their Jewish faith. So they went to the court official and they said, you know, uh, we don't want to defile ourselves with this. Don't make us eat these things. So the true God caused the principal court official to show Daniel favor. However, he feared that not following the king's demands would result in punishment or death to the court official. He was worried that if he didn't follow the king's demands just right, the king would kill him because that's what they did back then. They didn't really value human life too well, did they? Please test your servants for ten days. And let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance of the youths who are eating all the king's delicacies and deal with your servants according to what you see. Now the, the court officials said, you know, hey, uh, 
they're going to kill me if I do this. I don't think I should. So Daniel, still wanting to hold strong to his faith, he said, okay, let's make a deal. Do it for us for 10 days. And then evaluate us. And if we are not the strongest and healthiest looking of the bunch, you do what you think you need to do. And Daniel trusted God to see them through that. So he agreed to the proposal and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, their appearance was better and healthier than all the youths who were eating the king's delicacies. So the guardian would take away their delicacies and their wine and give them vegetables. Um, I really think when I read this, I really don't think it's so much the food or the wine that they ate and drank. I think it was the effort to maintain their faith that God blessed. God, God blessed them with health. God saw what they were trying to do in his name, and he said, you know what, I'm going I'm to bless this. I'm going to make this happen. So he, he allowed this to be a successful venture, and they won. So the true God gave these four youths knowledge and insight into every kind of writing and wisdom. And Daniel was given understandings and all sorts of visions and dreams. So for the three years, the youths studied all the philosophies, all the books, all the texts of the Babylonian society in which they were, I'll say, imprisoned. And... Uh, Um, so they did that for three years, and uh, it had nothing to do with their faith, but they submitted to the king, but they also held their faith, and they were blessed for it. At the end of the time, the king had specified to bring them into the principal court, and the official brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. So now they're in there being evaluated by the king. And when the king spoke to them, no one in the entire group was found to be like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they continued to serve before the king. So this effort, even though it went contradictory to the king's wishes, this effort bore fruit, and they became the best of the lots. In every matter requiring wisdom and understanding, the king would ask them about he found them ten times better than all the magic practicing priests and the wise men of the kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Daniel and his friends were young Jewish men being challenged to partake in secular lifestyles. And it goes back to what I've heard our pastor talking about. And he spoke about this in recent weeks. In times of trial, where were your faith lies? We've all been asked that question. In this time, this is a very uh, trying time we live in, and our pastors asked us right up here, where were your faith lie? Amen? And what they proved in this story is that you can hold in your faith in any situation. From children all throughout our lives, we will find ourselves being challenged to hold in our faith and not submit to the world. And we can choose these moments. This is coming from Rick Warren, but I thought it was pretty neat, so I thought I'd share it. We can choose these moments to either take a dive, withdraw to survive, or thrive. 
So Daniel being had this challenge, he could have took a dive. He could have said, okay, we'll eat whatever you want. He could have done that. He could have just withdrawn and did the minimum that he had to do to survive and not rock the boat. He could have done that. But he chose to thrive. He went to the court official and he said, I know what you're trying to say. I know it's the king's word, but I need to let you know about my faith. Amen. And I can't bend on this. So he decided to thrive. And it worked out. To navigate these waters takes a thing called choice. Amen. One of the biggest gifts and one of the biggest responsibilities God has given us is choice. God has chose us, and he gave us the gift to choose him back. You think about that. We were created because God wanted someone to love, and he wanted someone to love us back, love him back. Not, not because we have to, but because we choose to. Amen. And i got to tell you, he really does earn every ounce of love I can give him. Every ounce. Robots have no choice in matters. They perform according to the commands they are given without question. They feel no sense of responsibility when things go wrong and no sense of joy, love, or accomplishment when things go right. We, however, are subject to the weight of our decisions. They can cause us great joy or great pain. Amen? Amen? Yeah. As we seek happiness, we will, seek it, will we seek it from God's wisdom or from the world? Now we're going to go into the book of Ecclesiastes where the writer attempts to achieve true happiness. Let's see how he did. Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon, who was the son of David. And he called himself the preacher, literally the speaker to the assembly. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem, it seems clear by all of his confessions that King Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes after many backslidden years. He was a very rich, very powerful king. And he lived his life as many kings do. He walked away from God for a while there. He started off, he was a man of God. And he started gaining favor, he started gaining wealth, he started gaining all the things that kings gain. And he started to drift away. But then he had a revelation and he drifted his way back toward God. And here's, where he wrote, here's, here's what he wrote about. He looked like he had a fulfilling life, but when he looked back on it, he realized that the deeds, the pleasures, and the accomplishments did not mean anything without a close relationship with his God. In some of the uh, Hebrew translations in this book of Ecclesiastes, you'll see a, a bunch of words coming up time and time again. One of the words is called hevel. Hevel. And it's a Hebrew word, and it translates in our language to the word meaningless. But in some of the other languages, it translates to smoke or vapor. So Solomon, time and time again, will consider these trials and these experiments that he went through. He, he's going to describe them as being meaningless or smoke or vapor. And I thought that was interesting and it explains it well. It explains like smoke is something you see physically but when you go to grab a hold of it, what does it do? It drifts away. 
So life, apart from God, is like a smoke or a vapor. It looks good, but when you go to hold on to it, it drifts away. Amen? Amen. The world recognized Solomon's great achievements, but he admits that having and not having God, he admits that all having without God is absolute meaningless. King Solomon sought out to answer about how to find or to not find true happiness. Solomon decided to try to achieve happiness apart from God. What would I like to explore is the tests or experiments he went through and what he came up with. And as he went through each trial, he concluded the same thing. These things are hevel or meaningless or a chasing of the wind. His first experiment was to find happiness through wisdom. I, the teacher, was the king, of, was the king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, a chasing of the wind. When it said all things under the sun, I felt the need to really understand what that meant in the text here, and I really researched it. And what, what they're trying to say here under the sun is apart from God. Because as we know, our world, everything under the sun, the world is subject to the sins of man. The world is subject to the efforts of the, of the enemy. Not a, it's not, the world is not a heavenly place. So anything we can do under the sun apart from God, Solomon has decreed that it is all meaningless or a chasing of the wind. Then there's uh, in 15, I know I'm probably not doing a very good job of leading you guys with the text here, but in um, Ecclesiastes 15 there, it reads, uh, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And what I gained from that is what is not of God cannot be justified by the effort of man. So Solomon uh, came up with that. That all we can do, as powerful and as big and as strong and as rich as we are, what is not of God cannot be justified by us. Amen? I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much wisdom and knowledge. And then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this, too, is chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. It doesn't seem fair, does it? We want to chase after knowledge. We think knowledge is going to get us somewhere, right? It says, as we know, life apart from God is full of sorrow and grief. And the more, the more we dive into the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, the more these things become uncovered and affect us. Sometimes it's very comfortable to sit back in your little comfort zone and be ignorant about things. But the more you dive into wisdom and knowledge, these things are going to come 
And you're going to realize that the world is not exactly always a beautiful place. The next experiment was to find happiness through wine or pleasure. In chapter 2, Solomon says, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, laughter, he said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, but my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Solomon tried to see if he could get by by drinking, partying, and just having a good time. But that also proved to be meaningless. It also doesn't seem quite fair, does it? Because these seem pretty good. Drinking, partying, having a good time, what's wrong with that? Right? But I think we all know, if you can, yeah, if you can pick one thing that you just love more than anything else in the world, whether it be a food or a drink or um, a sport or anything, and you infinitely expand your exposure to that, how long would it be before you're tired of that? You know? You like chocolate cake. What if I told you you had to eat 20 pieces of chocolate cake every day for the rest of your life? You know, eventually chocolate cake loses its luster, right? Amen. So that was a bummer. It also proved to be meaningless. Solomon next tried to find happiness through work. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female singers and had other slaves who were born into my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I think Solomon's expressing right there that in his time he was capable of doing whatever he wanted. He went out there and he did, he built projects, he built houses, he built kingdoms. He bought male and female slaves and he had other slaves that were born into my house. And what that means to me is he had slaves that were working for him for generations. That's how powerful he was. So he had more slaves than he could count. He had more houses that he could live in. He had more things to look at than you and I could ever understand. But he found it meaningless. Next, Solomon tried women and wealth as his source of happiness. And I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, historians say at the time of his highest wealth, they estimate Solomon's wealth to be about $2.2 trillion. That was back then. I don't know anybody who has $2.2 trillion in their bank account today. Bill Gates does not have $2.2 trillion. The king of Saudi Arabia does not have $2.2 trillion. But they say Solomon did. It's pr pretty easy to think, man, I got $2.2 trillion. What do I have to worry about? Right? But he amassed silver and gold for himself, the treasure of kings and provinces. He acquired males and female singers, a harem as well, 
all the delights of a man's heart. We may want to convince ourselves that if we have the right relationships or enough relationships, we will find that fulfilling. I remember growing up as a young kid, if I could just get a girlfriend, I would be happy. And I got one. And I was happy for about a week. And then relationships just started to happen. Yeah. So then I always pursued for a girlfriend. So if I, got, if I got to go out with this girl, I'd be happy. If I got to go out with that girl, I'd be happy. And for a second or two, it worked. But then it was fleeting. It was like a vapor or a smoke. It went away quickly. So then I thought, you know what? And then I met, I met my wife. But you know what? If I could just get her to go out with me, I would be happy. And I was. For a while. Not that she did anything wrong. Life comes, and it inserts itself. No matter what relationship you have, life comes. Yeah. I thought, you know, if I just got a good job, I could be happy. It's bagging groceries at the IGA. And then I got this job here at LNL Products, and I made more money in one week than I made in three or four at the IGA. And I was happy yeah. until I wasn't. First profit sharing check I ever got. I was happy. Until I wasn't. And I thought, you know, if I could just, maybe if I get married, I'll be happy. And we did. And it was great. And I was happy. But then life came back in. Right? So I still had that yearn, that suffer something else. And I said, you know, I... I lived in the trailer park. I said, you know, if I can just build my own, if I can just get myself a house. I grew up renting property. My parents never owned anything. They were never able to have anything like that. And I found myself able to do something like that. That was a great sense of pride for me. So I thought if I could just build that house. I wasn't barely 30 years old, and I was building my own house, and I was happy. Until the tax bill came. And then I wasn't. Amen? Amen. So that's what Solomon's going through. He's doing all these things to try to fill that hole. But it never gets filled. Because he's doing it apart from God. And I'll be honest with you. When I got married, I did it in a church. I did it, I believed in God. But my wedding in my heart and my mind was not a godly event. It was just something you did. It was me telling the world that I love this woman enough to be with her the rest of my life. It was not a God thing. It was a Mark thing. I wish that had been different then. But it wasn't. It is today, though. Amen. So in 1 Kings, the Bible says Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Can you believe that? There are, probably, there are probably some of those concubines that he didn't even know. They were just on the payroll. And he found it to be meaningless, a chasing of the wind. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I denied myself nothing 
my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. The chasing of the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So he went through all these experiments, and he tried to find happiness, and he just, he just couldn't fill that hole. And he started to conclude that there is, in fact, a time for everything. Chapter 3.3, 3, if you got that, I'd like to put that up. Okay. This is a, spa this is a passage in Ecclesiastes that you all know. They, they wrote a song about it. But I like it a lot. I think it's really uh, powerful and it really talks about... Um, it really gives me perspective as to uh, being impatient and uh, being, um, you know... Uh, Trusting in God's way and in his timing. Ready? Okay. There's a time for everything. A season and a season for every activity under the heaven. Notice he said, under the heaven. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. There's a time to tear down and a time to build. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. That's not a COVID statement there. <laughs> a time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate. There's a time for war and a time for peace. And I think that passage right there is, talks a lot about spiritual maturity, about being able to look out into your lives about all the things that are out there for you to do and not do and understanding the wisdom to understand the difference. It's pretty obvious there is a time to, born, to be born. When you're born, you're born. And when you die, you die. But how do you decide? When is there a time to build and when is there a time to tear down? When is there a time to weep and a time to laugh, how do I understand when these things are pertinent to my life and when they're not? The answer is to live a life that is not apart from God and trust in His guidance in these things. Amen? And he follows up by saying, whatever is, whatever is has already been, and what will be has been done before. And God will call the past into account. And I saw something else under the sun. And what I get from that passage is uh, no matter what you have to contribute to this world, whether no matter how smart you are or how capable you are or how rich and powerful and uh, impressive you think you may be, the world is going to go by without you. The world was here when you were here. 
when, before you were here, the world's going to go by after you've gone. If you had the ability to build the largest kingdom in the world, housing millions, funding billions, and you were the most powerful world, person in the world, why don't you go climb a mountain and ask that mountain what he thinks about it? Right. He doesn't care. Because he was here before you started, and he'll be here before you end. Amen? And the only, the only being that we can say was here before we started and will be here before we end is that of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if you were to look to anybody for power and guidance, you look to them. Amen? In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, and there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. So I think what they're talking about there is they're talking about um, we like to uh, put our own uh, understanding and our own judgment on us and how we live our lives. I'm good enough. He's bad, so therefore he doesn't count, and I'm great, so therefore I do count. And What it says here is, wherever you may be, for every deed you perform, there will be a time to be judged. So you're going to be judged, no matter what. Solomon next started to gain insight on things like oppression and toil, and loneliness. As I got into this, uh, this, this book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is a lot. It's a lot. And I found myself wanting to talk about all of it, but I'm going to try to ch touch on the things that I think are, are here. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter, Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comfort. And I declared that the dead, who had already died, are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is the one who had never been born, and who has not seen evil, that is done under the sun. I thought that was a pretty strong statement. Um, better to be dead than to be living, and better yet, to have never been born. And what Solomon's talking about there is he sees the oppression, he sees the sadness and the loneliness that is here in this world, and he doesn't wish it on people. And he, he, in his opinion, it would be better to have never experienced the things that we go through than to live and gain whatever we may gain in this world and still go through those things. Amen? And again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This, too, is meaningless, a miserable business. 
Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So Solomon talks about the need. If all your efforts are just for your own purpose, what are they really done? Who's going to be there to enjoy my efforts after I've gone? It's important to have people in your life. And in the end, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. What I, th what I think I've learned about this sentence right here is what the cord of three relates to is when you have two, that relates to you and other people. So that could be one, that could be two, that could be many. It's kind of a metaphor. But when a cord of three, that is you, that is other people, and that is God. God's that third person. So of course, so if you have that person, if you have yourself, you have someone to love and count on, and you have God in your life, it's not quickly broken. That's what I got from there. So he says, go eat food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all of your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. So I think what he's trying to say here is he's, he's telling us in this meaningless life we live in where toil is all we really have to know. He says God has given us hope. He's giving us things that we can do that is of God and that can give us hope and it can give us joy and it can give us contentment in his honor. So Solomon goes on to say, remember your creator while you're young. Light is sweet and it pleases the eyes to see the sun. However many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all. But let them remember the days of darkness for there will be many. Everything to come is meaningless. You who are young, be happy while you are young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast your troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless." So Solomon is reminding us that even though this life is toilsome, it's hard, it may even be considered meaningless, we have hope. We have hope. And we can live 
in a way that is pleasing to God. But he wants us to remember that as we're choosing what we want to do and what we want to be, just remember to live a life in God's presence and not apart from God. Because if you try to float away, the meaningless parts of life will be what you experience. Does that make sense? Amen. Now all has been heard, for here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So Solomon thought, sought out to find happiness in a way that was apart from God. And he came to realize that the only happiness he could ever find is to have a God, have a God in his life and to follow him and to love him and to be loved by him. For everything else is meaningless or a chasing of the wind. Thank you for coming here and uh, spending this time with me. This is what I have for you today. And God bless and keep you on your day. And, and I hope this touched somebody's heart today. I hope it helped somebody. I hope it learned. Somebody learned from this. I know I did. And I'm going to read this book a couple more times because, like I said, it is a lot. But I'm glad I did. I'm glad I, I'm glad I dug in. And uh, like I said, I don't know why he trusts me to do this, but I'm so glad he does. Because I wouldn't trade it for anything. Amen? All right. I love you all. Thank you.